Hello friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to the show, Sister Veritas and Sister Anne. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. (laughs) Well, it's exciting uh, to have you on for two reasons, because we have two really nice things to talk to you about. One that just happened and one that's coming up. So why don't we start with the one that just happened, which is the Sikh conference, which took place um, just last week, right? A week ago? Yeah. Uh, this, this, this past weekend. So we're recording during the week, and this, was, this took place this past weekend. I was, I was telling you, sisters, just before we hit record, that I was very disappointed because my son, uh, who's a sophomore in college, who's very involved in his, um, in his Newman Center at school, and he has a wonderful relationship with the Focus Missionaries, uh, mm-hmm. there and he's very close to them and he really wanted to go to the Sikh conference this year and wasn't able to go because we had an important family wedding and those things are important too but I was very disappointed that he wasn't there so tell us please about the amazing Sikh conference which I have heard has grown and has fabulous attendance yeah it's it really is amazing that's the word for it it's just i mean it was like 20 25,000 people coming uh in saint converging on saint louis and really to to experience and to praise um jesus and the love of jesus and be together um and crazy powerful graces you know it's it's a it's a whole week of, of basically amazing speakers eucharistic adoration the holy mass all these talks and people literally just becoming on fire for the faith. Uh, the energy there is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we we were just privy to hear about so many amazing graces of of conversions, of freedom from uh, sin, of um, yeah, experiencing God's love in a new way. Uh, really powerful things. Mm-hmm. So for people, for listeners who don't know about Seek, give us the give us the background, please, of what's what is the Seek conference and who is it that co- who organizes it and who is it that comes. Yeah, so the, the the focus is really the one behind SEEK, so Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And gosh, I can't remember the year that it began, but... Um, 25 years ago. About 25 yeah. years ago, yeah. so... <laughs> and um, we, love, yeah, just, uh, we love focus here on Conversations with Conferences. Well, I'm sorry, Conversations with Consequences. We've had uh, Curtis Martin, who's the, the, the originator and the CEO, uh, on. And also, just recently, we had a focus missionary from my son, from my son's uh, college, who was amazing. His name is Javi, and he gave the most beautiful testimony about being a focus missionary and his wonderful work at college. But go ahead, sister. Sorry to interrupt you. No, that's great. I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So focus really, they, it's it's kind of the the dream of their heart. Yeah. To be able to, to share the gospel with as many as possible and to create missionary disciples. And so it's really an opportunity for college students um, and, and those not in college to encounter Christ. And so they started these conferences years ago of a gathering. Um, and in some ways it feels like a mini world youth day. <laughs> it gives people an opportunity to be in contact with the church universal and it's just, yeah, it's a beautiful experience of, of talks throughout the week and prayer time and mass and the sacraments and um, just really 
yeah, convergence, as you were saying, sister. And very young, right? It's a it's very, a very young. young crowd. Yeah, 18 year olds, mostly 18, 19, 20 people in college. Um, and then you do have some that are uh, after college, but there's booths set up of all kinds of Catholic ministries in the States and beyond. So it's really, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. Does that give you, seeing, seeing that, seeing that kind of uh, congregation of youth, does that give you a lot of hope for the future? Because I think lately, I don't know about you sisters, I mean, the Sisters of Life are, are just, you, I know that you radiate hope and faith. And so you must have a lot more confidence <laughs> than regular people like us who are, who are sometimes bowed down, no, by the way that the world seems a dark place. Um, and, mm-hmm. and certain, you know, things that have happened recently have made me a little sad, uh, more sad than general, no, about the state of the world, uh, things that are happening in Israel, for instance, and the, the, the atrocities, no, that, that were committed that one doesn't like to think are possible for human beings, right, to commit against each other. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. what does that feel like when you see a group of young people so beautifully committed to to our Lord and 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 to the to the ideals that save. Yeah, well, it's it's so powerful. I mean, really, yeah. There's so much hope, so much real grace, and and you realize like Jesus is alive mm-hmm. and he is working. Like he is not he has not left us. He is here with us. And and the miracles that happen in the gospels they're still happening today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that wasn't a story a long time ago. It's it's a continuation of, of what. What has happened is still happening. He is alive and he, he's real and he's he's moving college students. He's moving their hearts. He's he's working miracles in their lives, you know. And I remember one of the keynote speakers was saying that, um, that they're not the future of the church. They're the present of the they're church. The present, yeah. And it was so, it was such a powerful, powerful thing to hear. And it, it's so true. Yeah. You know, there's something about young people that that we lose. We know when, when as we get older, that we lose that, that, that sense of urgency and that sense that that uh, that that feeling that we can go out and conquer and change things and that enthusiasm for that right like that's really belongs to youth mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and how wonderful that all all that youthful possibility and potential is is for these young people that's wrapped around their faith and around Jesus around our lord mm-hmm. it's awesome yeah it's incredibly inspiring mm-hmm. yeah yeah so what kind yeah. do you does so uh, focus and seek is uh, they you that it's a little factory of vocations i'm sure right vocations to all the beautiful paths of of christian life do you find that i was so moved actually yeah it's very beautiful i mean um i was very moved by just yeah the witness of those in in a committed vocation you know the one of the mornings you know they were relevant radio was hosting the rosary every morning in the main stadium and one morning one of the um mcs had her little baby in her arms while she was praying the rosary so even that just the witness of of a mother who's faithfully living her vocation and it's chock full of families and religious and so it really just gives yeah i think young people um a sense of yeah, the value of love and giving your life for something and, and really an encounter with, with the vocations um, that are offered to them by the Lord. So definitely, I think a lot of grace there of people being able to say yes and, and open their hearts to God's will in new ways. Mm-hmm. For our listeners who don't know much about Focus or Seek, where, where can, I'm sure they can Google in and go online and on their websites, but they can look forward no, to another conference next year. Is it always held in St. Louis? Uh, it's not. So they, they change it up every uh, every few years. So next year is actually going to be Salt Lake City, which oh. is great. But um, for those who didn't go, you can actually go. They have a great new website called seekreplay.com. 
uh, where you can actually watch all of the, the big keynotes and big breakouts from this year's Seek. Um, so you can go in there and see those for free. So oh. seek.com, was, um, what, which is awesome. Was there, so you were there, were, were there, uh, was there some really uh, speaker that really moved you or, or, or got a wonderful response? I mean, I'm sure they were all fabulous, <laughs> but was there one that you remember that really, really yeah. gave you enthusiasm? Yeah, they were great. I mean, had, there's a great lineup of speakers. I mean, Monsignor James Shea was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, Father Mike Schmitz, uh, Father John Azradi. We had one of our sisters, Sister Mary Grace, speak. She did awesome. Mm-hmm. So just really inspiring, uh, inspiring talks. So, so yeah, lots of material. Lots of material there. Tell, tell us again the website. Uh, seekreplay.com. Okay, that's S-E-E-K, seekreplay.com. Okay, so mm-hmm. that was that was last week, and that was obviously an amazing success. But coming up in the next couple of weeks, we have the March for Life, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah, and and less than less than a week now uh, by the time the show airs. So January nineteenth is the March for Life, and mm-hmm. before uh, the so it starts at noon, as as I well know, as I've been there many times. Um, mm-hmm. The morning of, we have something called Life Fest, or you have something called Life Fest. So tell us about Life Fest, what you're expecting to do, and 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 who you're expecting to be there. So Life Fest um, is a, a morning rally held on the morning of the March for Life, January nineteenth, and it, we're partnering with the uh, Sisters of Life and the Knights of Columbus are are partnering to put it on, and it's basically is happening at the. DC Armory, which is a 10,000 seat stadium. Um, and we're having, it's basically like this awesome morning rally of uh, dynamic speakers and testimonies, um, music by Sarah Kroger and Damascus Worship. Um, we have uh, Holy Mass as part of it, celebrated by Archbishop Laurie from Baltimore and Cardinal Sean O'Malley is actually the, the homilist. Oh. Um, and then we have some uh, Monsignor James Shea giving, who was just spoke at Seek, did it so amazingly. He's going to speak again with a Eucharistic, um, time of Eucharistic adoration with powerful music. So it's really, um, yeah, just a, a, an invitation to, to people to come and actually just be immersed in the celebration of life, in a culture of life, and to actually have their hearts formed in, in the, a new language of life and love, especially after you know, this post-row culture and how to... Um, to lean more into um, understanding the heart of a woman who's pregnant, women who have suffered after abortion, to lean more into living this integrated um, uh, life that is is uh, that is pro-life and what that means. Um, and yeah, so it's really just a, an amazing celebration of life uh, together. So that's a, really- that seems like a very beautiful lead up to the march, which the march has a very uh, uh, strong political undercurrent, right? Or main current, <laughs> uh, because obviously there's people... Uh, um, the speakers, there's Congress people that come, and and there's obviously the the march ever since it started decades ago was very focused mm-hmm. on changing the laws right around abortion, which which under Roe v. Wade were so uh, egregiously unjust right against against the unborn child and against women and and mothers and fathers and families. Of course, it's not just the child that suffers. Uh, so how wonderful! So there is that strong political part to it, but how wonderful that. All these people, young people, mostly young people, I imagine, at the Life Fest, um, mm-hmm. then go from you know are 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 prepared really beautifully spiritually, right for for the march itself. Mm-hmm. So they don't mm-hmm. miss that. So they don't miss like the big picture, as you say, of mm-hmm. the of the of what it is to be pro life. Like what what does a life what does a culture of life look like? Which I think for a lot of young people must be hard to imagine and hard to even 
contemplate as a possibility, right? Because they have grown up as so many of us have, even, even I was, mm-hmm. I was born a little before Roe v. Wade, I guess, but we don't know what a culture of life would look like, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it begins with, with our hearts first, you know, like that every human heart is longing to know that they're, they're wanted and they're good and that God has a beautiful plan for them and that, you know, he chose them from all eternity. And at every moment he's holding them in existence and breathing life into them and loving them. And when we receive the good news of the gift of our own life, that it's not what we do or produce that gives value to our life, but simply that we are because we are loved and that we exist, that that's enough. Um, when we receive that gift, then it allows us to go forward and and to really create a culture of life. So as sisters of life, we, we so long that every human heart knows this truth and life fast is one opportunity to really hold that truth out and bestow it upon others, please God, um, so that this culture of life can begin one heart at a time. And the it's it's it has to do with with letting go of our of our the materialism that's sort of built into us, right? Materialism in the sense of of being too too much in tune with the material world and not enough with our with, with our our supernatural realities, which are so much more real than than the things that we can feel. Uh, with our fingers, right, or listen, or hear with our ears, the supernatural realities, the fact that we are, like you say, people, uh, creatures that are breathed into existence and loved into being, mm-hmm. that we are sustained by this love, and that every person we meet is that radiant creature, <laughs> loved mm-hmm. by God. How beautiful! How beautiful that your lives as sisters of life are dedicated and are are shaped around that that tremendous reality. What it, what is that? What is it? What is it like to be a sister of life? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so you know, I've wonderful. never seen, I've seen many sisters of life. I've talked to many of you and I've never seen one without a smile on her face. So it must be a tremendously gratifying life. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a gift. I mean, really just such a gift. And I think each of us are just so moved by, yeah, this profound love of Jesus for every human heart, for my heart, you know, mm-hmm. and that he, like, he desires every human person. Like you were totally irreplaceable in God's heart or in the world. No one can replace you. Like it's so, and just to be so moved by that um, and to, to be able to live yeah, um, in that is so powerful. And actually just to like, look at every person that you, we see, it's just like, they are so important to the heart of God, you know? And as you're saying, like there was so, every person, you are worth so much more than you can do or produce or achieve, right? That love alone defines the human person. And so just the tremendous gift of living, living that reality and that giving our lives um, for that truth and living in communion with each other and with our Lord and the blessed sacrament. It's, um, you know, and it's such a, a gift and a joy. And yes, you know, everybody has sufferings, like every vocation, there's always laundry, you know, but, but it's like, <laughs> oh, I like that. So, I haven't heard that phrase. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's such a, a joy and a privilege and a gift. So yeah. such. Could, a, could I ask, could I ask each of you to give us a little short uh, recount of your vocation story? Very short, whatever you'd like to share. Sure. Yeah. Well, I grew up Catholic, but kind of had a reversion in college in my faith and was began just asking question of vocation and God's will for my life and always wanted to get married and have a family, um, watched my sisters fall in love and have children and um, dreamt that for my life. But as I grew in my prayer, just, yeah, felt this this invitation from the Lord that that my heart would be his alone. And, and I remember being at a wedding and um, 
And after looking up at this new, you know, husband and wife, just felt the Lord saying, this kind of spousal love, um, I'm asking this uh, of you and me, um, that we would live this together, you know, that um, that my heart would be totally his. So I know for me that, yeah, that was really how the Lord drew my heart was through that spousal invitation, uh, which is really what he holds out to every consecrated heart um, and found the grace uh, my senior year in college when I met the sisters to say yes and just made my final vows in August and it's been such a joy, uh, yeah, ever since. Oh my, what a beautiful story. How lovely, mm-hmm. how lovely to see the romance in it, right? <laughs> I mean, a lot of people don't think of it as romantic, and yet all the all the best feelings of our hearts are romantic, right? They're, they're about union and, and, um, and purity, really, right? Romance is all about purity and union and ultimate and, and complete, complete self-gift. I mean, that's how I think about romance, <laughs> complete self-gift. And you, Sister Veritas? Yeah, you know, I, I felt called in like sixth grade, and I was like, no way, God, never. <laughs> so sixth grade? Yeah, you were a baby. Yeah, but just a baby. So I pushed away the call for like 10 years. But over that time, I per- experienced a profound kind of conversion of heart and mind when my parents experienced a conversion, uh, deeper conversion to the faith. And I started reading and really falling in love with the truths of the Catholic Church and, and that the truth is a person and his name is Jesus. So intellectual conversion and then a, a conversion of the heart when my, my mom became unexpectedly pregnant and I was 14 and my little sister totally changed my life, rocked my world and just my heart like exploded with love and I wait, didn't know it could, you know, went into college. And then finally, um, after really the call kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger to be totally his, you know, and I kept fighting and fighting. <laughs> and then I finally, yeah, uh, midway through college, really surrendered to him and just had this peace and this joy I had never known before and felt more myself in that moment of surrender than I ever felt before. And um, anyway, found out about the Sisters of Life through a friend who went to World Youth Day and met them there. And yeah, really discerned the Lord calling me. So I, I entered after I finished my degree uh, in college. But um, yeah, just such a, yeah, he is so faithful. He is so good. He knows what's going to make us the most happy, you know, and what our hearts are made for. So just so grateful to him for pursuing my heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, Even said when something, I you said something very interesting. You said you felt more yourself you, than you ever had before. Mm-hmm. What, is, what does that mean exactly? What, what, how more yourself? What, what is it about your individuality that, that, uh, that, that, your, that your vocation highlights or, or makes possible? It's a very deep question. <laughs> yeah, that's a thing. I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been thinking about, about um, how our relationship with God makes us more mm-hmm. ourselves and more individual and more distinct. Because I think a lot of people who don't have the faith, who, do, who, who don't have lives of faith and, and contemplation, mm-hmm. they think that, that we become, that by giving ourselves over to God, we become just like less, we become like an interchangeable piece, right? And so I see, I'm looking at you two on Zoom and maybe our, some of our listeners are going to watch on YouTube and they're going to see two women dressed alike, you know, in identical habits with the identical Crucif- you know, crucifixes on, on chains. And the only difference between you is your glasses, Sister Veritas, and <laughs> to, yes, to what we can see. And obviously your lives must be very similar. You live in community, for instance, and, and you follow the same paths during the day and you have the same rhythms of, of your plan of life. But you're more individual. I feel like you're more individual, you're more yourselves. And you said that. So what, mm-hmm. what do you think, Sister Veritas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I can give some lots of few thoughts too. But yeah, just like every human person is so unique, like so unique, unrepeatable, made in God's image. Like you reflect the glory of God in a way that no one else can. It is impossible to, you know? So yeah, and it's, I think John Paul II talks about we're each incommunicable, which means you can't be me. I can't be you. Like I can only be myself, you know? 
And and you're right, speaking of the mystery of like, actually, the more I surrender to him, the more I'm in union with him. He doesn't take away my uniqueness or individuality. He he enhances it. He enhances the gift and the, the beauty that is me, that he's made in his image, uh, unique and unrepeatable. And so I think that's the wonderful gift of holiness. It's like, I don't... Um, my uniqueness doesn't disappear. It's actually, it actually is enhanced. And you can see this in the lives of the saints, right? Like the saints are so different yes, from each other, yes. right? You have like, <laughs> you have like, you know, it was Pope John the 23rd who, you know, all he could do for fasting was instead of putting five teaspoons of sugar in his tea, he put two, you know, oh. like, and he was a big, he was a large man, you know? And then you have like some saints, um, you know, who just lived on the Eucharist, right? Or you, you have saints who are funny. and saints Or who saints are that go into battle or saints that are tremendously pacifist right they couldn't they couldn't kill a fly and then you have jones of arc right. yeah and so it's wonderful and actually it's just the gift of you know our saint francis de sales said and our founder would often quote this but being a saint is being yourself and actually to become more and more who you are as god has made you to be and and your committed vocation actually um flourishes that possibility committed love actually allows you to have the freedom to love with the uniqueness of your heart in a more in a, in a powerful way you know and so I think, yeah, kind of finding our vocations, it's just, it's been this like trajectory of just the Lord revealing more and more to you who you are as he reveals more and more to you who he is. So, because I, I suppose the more, the more you love, the, the, the more you develop, right? So you become more. So you mm -hmm. also, there's more to know, right? right? The more you love God, the more you are, that there's more of you, right? There's, there's deeper and deeper parts of you that you can then live more deeply in and know yourself better. What yeah. do you think, Sister? It's kind of, yeah, I'd like to think of the analogy of filling a balloon, you know, when John, John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. But it's almost like when you blow up a balloon, right? There's more and more air, like that was like the life of God. And you, you're stretched more, but you actually become more who you are because you're, you're meant to be filled. You're meant mm -hmm. to be like a limit. It's a very rough analogy, limping analogy. But, no, but it's, no, I like it. What yeah. about, okay, but here's a question. Um, and we're getting now deep into philosophy, but there is a, in, 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 uh, in the modern culture, there's a very strong, like almost, almost enforced, horribly enforced set, uh, idea of individuality, which is completely different from what we're talking about here, right? Like be yourself at all costs. You know, do what do what you want to do today. Don't don't let that that kind of um, putting the self in the center of everything and and having to 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 do what you know what yourself is calling you to do, regardless. How is that different? How is that modern culture's idea of individuality different from what we've been talking about? Well, it makes me think of. Uh, I mean, I'm sitting here with Sister Veritas, Sister Truth. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm thinking of the scripture passage where it says, "The truth will set you free." And really, I think what sisters speaking of in this beauty of, of flourishing and stepping into who you are is is allowing the truth of of who God is and who we are to fill the entirety of our being. And truth is a person. So so stepping into the life of Jesus and who Jesus is, um, that actually allows us to become truly free um, and truly uniquely who we are. But we can't live it apart from Jesus and the truth of what he holds out to us, of what it means to be a human person and what it means to love and where we come from and where we're going. So, so really, yeah, freedom is connected to Jesus and really only living in a accord with him are we truly ourselves and i think that's the difference in the culture is 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 trying to find freedom apart from jesus and trying to find who you are apart from him and and really it's only in him that that will grow into the gift that we are mm -hmm. so developing our individuality and uh, but our individuality wrapped around the truth right who is jesus and that allows yeah. us to flourish and truly be ourselves in a way that that leads us up right that leads us to god and not mm -hmm. just into a, a circle of of self-regard and, mm -hmm. and conceit. Yeah, because yeah, John Paul II talks about how um, like Christ reveals man to himself and that 
you know, by making a gift of ourselves, that's how we find ourselves, you know, and it actually makes me think of just going back to Life Fest, like we're part of Life Fest, we're having the uh, relics of the Olma family mm. present at Life Fest. And these are people who like, they exemplified what it means. Are they, are they the pole, the, the Catholic Poles who gave their lives yeah. for to, to guard their Jewish um, yeah. friends? Yeah. Oh, that's so a they beautiful hit, story. Hit, Jewish families during World War II and then they were caught and, and the whole family was killed, including the unborn unborn baby. And it's like, wow, what a what a witness, you know, of exactly what you're talking about, of giving yourselves in love and actually becoming holy, becoming saints, becoming truly who you are. And and you know, that this little little unborn baby, this little one-year-old, this little five-year-old, like they're all now gonna be blessed. They are all blessed, you know. And so I think just the the tangible example of that and and the gift of being able to venerate the relics at Life Fest, which is exciting. So even that's a wonderful, that. what a wonderful thing to to make central at Life Fest uh, in in these days, no, of of anti-Semitism and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and the kind of horrors that you that we thought were 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 contained in history, but they're very present now. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah. uh, young people are are the ones who can listen very clearly to their consciences, right? They seem. I feel like God can speak very clearly to them, and and they are the ones that can be that can be the vanguard, right, of all good things in, in dark mm-hmm. times. I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything better than Life Fest, followed by <laughs> the March for Life and venerating these these relics and then the Eucharistic adoration. Can people mm-hmm. follow along? Uh, is there like a link that they can follow along uh, live from home if they can't make it? Most people can't make it, obviously, to mm-hmm. Life Fest. Yeah, so there's if you go to the website lifefestrally.com, so you can actually register there. Um, so we encourage you to uh, register now. We want to fill that stadium, so please uh, be such a gift to have you. Uh, but there's also they'll be live streamed as well, so um, you can watch out that link lifefestrally.com, and on the day of will be the the live streaming also on that website, so they can watch from home as well. Okay, so if you're in the DC area or you can get there on January 19th, it starts at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. at the day of the march. And tell me again, tell me again the yes. name of the the, um, the stadium. You said the Armory. Yeah. The DC Armory, yep. DC so Armory. the doors, doors open at 6 o'clock. And just because it's such a big stadium, so many people. So doors open at 6, six o'clock. And then Damascus Worship, which is kind of like a new cutting edge um, <laughs> uh, Catholic worship um, team, I guess how you describe them. They'll be they'll start to play at 6. Then 7.30 is kind of like the... Um, the welcome and the testimonies and music. And then we'll have uh, Eucharistic Adoration with music by Sarah Kroger at 8.45 and then 9.30 Holy Mass. And then there's some testimonies all sprinkled throughout, which are going to be so powerful. So yeah, we're really, really excited. Okay. Well, I hope that you fill the stadium and that it's a fabulous success. I, I, I can't imagine it not being a success. My daughter was there last year. My, I wasn't able to go because I was working there at the March um, with the with the March for Life itself. But last year, my she was 16 then, and she just loved Life Fest. So send your young people, bring them, go. It's a wonderful experience and an opportunity to unite mm-hmm. ourselves with Christ and with all things life before the March for Life. So thank you so, so very much, sisters, for joining me today on Conversations. It was a great pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. A gift to be with you, really. Yeah. Thank you.
Joining us next is Katie Faust. She's an old friend of the show's, a good friend of mine, and she is the author of a wonderful book that we have talked about on the show before called Them Before Us about the rights of children and how those the rights of children supersede those of adults, no, when it comes to sexuality. And Katie has some wonderful ideas about that that have been to me very illuminating and very, you know, enlightening of the way I think about about human relationships and sexuality. But we've asked Katie to come on the show today to talk about surrogacy, another topic that she's very interested in and has written widely about. Pope Francis said on January 8th, and I'm quoting, The path to peace calls for respect for life, for every human life, starting with the life of the unborn child in the mother's womb, which cannot be suppressed or turned into an object of trafficking. In this regard, I deem deplorable the practice of so-called surrogate motherhood, which represents a grave violation of the dignity of the woman and the child based on the exploitation of situations of the mother's material needs. A child is always a gift and never the basis of a commercial contract. So welcome to the show, Katie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for covering this. Uh, Thanks to the Pope for speaking very clearly about uh, surrogacy and the harms that it has to women, but especially to children. Surrogacy is a difficult topic to talk about, even with Catholic uh, and Christian people who who already have a strong sense of the dignity of of children, the dignity of life, because they tend to see it as sort of a gift to an infertile couple where no life is is expended. It's simply a kind of passage through the womb of another woman who's happy to do it. I think many people imagine that it's very often done as a as a charity, you know, by a woman, a woman volunteers to be a surrogate for someone she loves, for instance. Explaining sur- surrogacy and, and the harms of surrogacy and how unethical it is is, is, a, is a difficult lift, even with people who are pro-life. Has that been your experience, Katie? Yes, it is. And it's because we have this false idea about what surrogacy is. It is, you know, you talk about surrogacy and probably because you and I run in fairly pro-life, conservative, pro-family circles. If we know somebody that has done surrogacy, it might be the woman whose sister is doing it for free because she had uterine cancer and no longer can carry children on her own. And while that does happen every now and then, that is not really what surrogacy is about. Largely, these are surrogacy would not happen without a commercial transaction. Altruistic surrogacy, where nobody gets paid, was legal in New York for several decades. But there was a huge demand for a push for commercial surrogacy because there were so many people that wanted children and not not enough women who were willing to do it for free. And so the vast majority of surrogate pregnancies are commercial in nature. There is direct payment going from the intended parents to the surrogate parents. So we need to just let go of this idea that this is always just about one woman helping another infertile woman who's then going to take her own biological children home. When we really look at what surrogacy is, it is not about babies going to moms and dads. It is about on-demand designer babies shipped worldwide. It is about Chinese men using Californian surrogates to custom order a child and then take them back to China where surrogacy is illegal and establish a foothold for citizenship in the future through their baby. It is about grandfather-aged men procuring children that are completely unrelated to them. It is about single, double, or triple men acquiring children that they would never have been approved of if they had to undergo screening or vetting or background checks like adoptive parents. It's about a way for 
predators to gain access to children um, that never would have passed adoption screening. It's about celebrities who don't want to ruin their bikini body um, by getting pregnant. So we really need to look at what this looks like on the ground and say our picture of this being just one woman helping another woman, while that may happen in a slim number of cases, that is not the reality of what surrogacy looks like when we're looking at it in totality. When the Pope refers to surrogacy as a kind of human trafficking, what does that mean? So this is exactly right. I used to be the assistant director of the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. One of the things I was responsible for was ensuring compliance with international, federal, and state-level standards to ensure that it was a legitimate adoption. And how do you know if it's a legitimate adoption? One of the main kind of bright red lines is money will never go from the adoptive parents to the birth parent or the genetic parent. If money ever went from the people that were adopting to the first family, in essence, so they would relinquish the baby, it was no longer adoption. It was child trafficking and both the parents and the agency were criminally liable. So that is one of the most straightforward explanations of what is child trafficking? What is baby selling? It's when the people who want the baby will pay the birth parents for the baby. So that is part of adoption best practice. But big fertility, surrogacy, sperm selling, sperm purchasing, egg selling, egg purchasing is built on direct payments to the genetic parents and the birth parents. Money always goes from intended parents directly to the first family. So they will relinquish rights on their child. So categorically, surrogacy is child trafficking when we look at, you know, all the different contracts and best practice that we have established internationally around adoption. And if you add on to that, that many of these situations occur between wealthy recipients and very poor uh, womb um, renters, right? As you might call a woman who is renting out her womb for nine months. What, what is, the, di what is the, di the differential there between the wealth, wealthy and the procurers? We don't have a lot of data because there's really no requirements for big fertility to track anything that they do. It is largely regulation free. We don't know how many embryos they destroy. We don't know what happens to these children after they are placed with their intended parents, even though many of them are trafficked across borders, which is another violation of children's rights established in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. It's very hard for us to understand even the outcomes, health outcomes for these children, because nobody is studying or tracking it. So we don't know the vast disparity, but there is a disparity. The reality is big fertility sets up shop in locations and countries filled with economically desperate women. Right now, 25% of the global surrogacy market is headquartered in Ukraine because these women have lost their husbands. Their husbands are at the front. They desperately need to make some money. We already have accounts of women who are surrogates who are, you know, <laughs> spending their time in a bomb shelter. Um, and we still have the surrogacy agency saying, oh, we're committed to making sure that you can still have your surrogacy pregnancy. Um, it absolutely disregards the rights and well-being of the women. But from a children's rights perspective, that's not the tact that we take because there are situations of surrogacy where you have the intended mother, the surrogate um, mother, and the genetic mother, the egg donor, who all love and consent to and benefit from the surrogacy arrangement. So in our perspective, the feminist angle of this is exploitation of women um, is not strong enough. But the argument of this is exploitation of children, this is a violation of their rights, 
is the right way to look at this because a you child know, I, I agree with you Katie and I want to and I want to make sure that you that you get down to the bottom of that because I completely agree but I do think that it's a harder sell and 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 now explain why why because I, I think this is the main point that has to be made well it is a harder sell and it is on the basis of the exploitation of women that largely surrogacy is banned across Europe I mean, this is a process that is considered trafficking um, in a large portion of the developed world. But again, I think it falls short. The reality is we have to look at this from the child's perspective. It actually is the same way that we look at issues of abortion. A lot of the time, the woman is very happy with the procedure. Uh, all the different adult parties are happy with the procedure. But the child would never consent to losing their life, even if they have a difficult diagnosis, even if they're going to be born into a home where there's maybe only one parent, um, even if there might be increased poverty, the child does not consent to their own death. Similarly, in surrogacy, the child does not consent to losing a relationship with their birth mother the day that they are born. Now, you and I are both adoptive mothers. You and I understand that sometimes tragedy takes place and the child cannot or will not be raised by their mother. But neither you nor I would say that's ideal. We should commercialize, incentivize, and promote that child loss. And especially in the name of, you know, what the adults want. So we need to recognize that there is a tragedy when a child loses a relationship with their birth mother. And the proper response is to mourn and then seek to mend that wound. What surrogacy does is it commercially inflicts that wound because adult desires are overriding the rights of children. So it's something we have to stand against in all cases. Katie, some people would say that the woman who who is um, bringing the child along in her womb is not the child's mother necessarily in a surrogacy in a surrogacy situation. Sometimes she's carrying the ova. She the ova of another woman is used. A woman who may not be able to who. who can ovulate possibly, but cannot cannot have um, a pregnancy to term. What is that still a case of, the, of a child losing their mother? Yes. And I would say it's even worse. And here's, the, you know, you talk about how it's hard to explain this to people. Let me tell you the most accurate way to explain surrogacy to someone from the child's perspective. What surrogacy does is it splices what should be one woman mother into three purchasable and optional women. So those three women are the genetic mother who contributes the egg, and that is the mother, the person that is responsible for half of the child's biological identity. And that's the woman that they will fantasize about if they're like other donor conceived to children, wondering, what is she like? Do I look like her? Do I get my um, affinity for art and music from that woman? Does she know that I exist? Do I have um, grandparents that know? Do I have other half siblings from her? So the genetic mother contributes the egg and the child's biological identity. The birth mother is the woman with whom the child forms a bond for the first nine and a half months of their life, a bond that lays the foundation for trust and attachment, a bond that many children who were adopted would say they experienced a primal wound because they lost a relationship with that woman the day that they were born. And then the third person 
that um, the third aspect of motherhood that's spliced through surrogacy is the social mother, the woman who will provide the female distinct love, affection, care for the baby every day of their life as the child grows. So the way that God, natural law, and our biological realities have established for children is for all of those mothers to be found in the same woman. And when they are not, the child experiences loss. And what surrogacy does is it says, which of these three women do you want? Which one do you think is optional? Which one do you think that you personally want to get rid of? One, two, all three? Surrogacy always insists that children lose a relationship with their birth mother, which is one third of the critical aspects of motherhood. But very often, the child will lose a relationship with all three. They will be starved of a genetic connection. They will be severed from the bond with their birth mother, and they will be raised in a home absent of maternal love altogether. Here's a tough one, Katie, for you and I as adoptive mothers. I've talked to people who've who've acquired children through surrogacy and, and told them how I, how I feel about it, that you and I share. And they've said to me, but you're an adoptive mother. You must understand that what really matters to the child is that they have a mother that loves them. How can you say that you are less of a mother than than the woman who gave birth to your child in China? Well, we are our child's mother and we are giving them that distinct female love that satisfies their soul and that maximizes their development. And thank God for the redemptive institution of adoption. But I would tell those women, just like I tell everyone else, and just like I've been very honest about with my son when he has had questions or he has had sadness around this loss. And that is, I can't fully compensate for everything that my son has lost. But we spend quite a bit of time at Them Before Us talking about how adoption supports the rights of children while big fertility, including surrogacy, violates the rights of children. And the distinction comes down to this one issue, and that is, in adoption, adults are doing hard things on behalf of children. In both big fertility and adoption, the child experiences a wound. But in adoption, the adults who are raising the child are seeking to mend the wound. Adults who are raising children created through a third party, somebody else's sperm, somebody else's egg, somebody else's womb, they have inflicted the womb on the child. In adoption, the adults are conforming their life to the rights and needs of the child. In big fertility, the child has to conform their rights to the desires of adults. And the one study that we have that compares outcomes between adopted children versus children created through sperm donation shows that the adopted children fare better, even though they're being raised by neither biological parent versus the sperm donor kids who are being raised by at least their biological mother. Why is that? Because creating children through big fertility inflicts a psychological burden on children because that wound was intentional versus adoptive families that are formed because adults are seeking to do hard things on behalf of the child and mend their wound. Children who grow up without their mother or father, you know, at them before us, we have profiled a variety of children from really every form of modern family who had to experience mother or father loss to be in that modern family. That's literally the definition of modern family is the child has to lose their mother or father to be in it. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we profile in chapter nine of our book, we sort of distinguish like, what is that psychological burden? Because children are going to wonder about their missing parent. They're going to experience loss, whether they lost their parents through death, divorce, abandonment, or reproductive technologies. They're going to need to process and understand why are they growing up apart from their 
first family. In the adoptive home, because the adult is not responsible for the child's loss, they don't have to process and mourn in isolation. They can talk to their parent who is seeking to mend their wound. In big fertility, if they were to voice their loss, their confusion, their bewilderment, their longing to know their missing parent, they are talking to the adult responsible for the other parent being out of their life. And so it means the child has to process in isolation. And that is where Mm. the psychological burden gets very, very heavy. So talk about how the definition of infertility expands in order to support the infertility corporate behemoth. Well, just like every other change that is taking place in the marriage and family world, the definition of infertility is now being, is morphing based not on any kind of medical reality, but based on the desires of adults. And that is what we're seeing across the board, whether it is the definition of parenthood, the definition of marriage, um, whether it is what is permissible in reproductive technologies, all of it comes down to what do the adults want? And then reality tends to bend around that. And so we have this misconception that adults have a right to a child even if that means the child has to lose a right to their own mother or father or both. So it's very important that we, all of us, conservatives, Christians, just responsible adults, start to think about marriage and family in a way that grounds itself in the natural rights of children, both their right to life and their right to their mother and father. Because when we do that, we get the right answer to questions about what is infertility or what is the definition of marriage or is sperm or egg donation or surrogacy permissible or desirable or moral or beneficial. And so that is Really what we try to do at Them Before Us is we lay the foundation for the rights of children. We talk about why defending children's rights is so critical to their mental, physical, emotional, psychological, academic well-being. And then we insist that all adults, single, married, gay, straight, fertile, and infertile, conform to the rights of children. Because the only alternative is for children to lose their rights for the sake of adult desire. And that is a recipe for an unjust society. Well, that's a beautiful per- place to end on, Katie. You you explain that so perfectly. And please tell our listeners where they can learn more about them before us. So thembeforeus.com is the place to go. Thank you, Katie Faust. Thanks for having me. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday, which he will help us enter more deeply into the inner nature of our Christian calling, just as he engaged two of his first followers then. So he wants to guide us now into the three main stages of growth in any Christian vocation. At a time of so much instability, confusion, and anxiety, as we mark this week the 51st anniversary of Roe vs. Wade, as we begin in earnest the presidential election season with the Iowa caucuses, as we continue to pray for a quick and just end to the war raging in Ukraine, the Holy Land, and beyond. The world, our country, the church, society, and our families need us to be the fully mature believers who can deliver Christ's light, love, and peace. So let's enter into the life-changing conversation Jesus wants to have with us as he seeks 
to help us come to full stature. The first stage of this consequential conversation is a true deep encounter with Jesus. When John the Baptist saw Jesus walking by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Two of those who had been following and helping the Baptist, Andrew and another disciple, who almost certainly was John the Evangelist, were obviously intrigued. As good Jews, they knew the significance of the Paschal Lamb from the Passover rite to free the Jews from slavery in Egypt from their reenacting it each year. When John pointed out Jesus as that Lamb of God, they couldn't help but be curious and full of wonder, so they tried to find out more. Inquiring minds, after all, want to know. They began to follow Jesus, but being fishermen, they were not particularly adept as private investigators. Jesus, aware that they were on his tail, turned around and asked, what are you looking for? Caught off guard, they asked, teacher, where are you staying? Jesus didn't respond with a direct answer to their small talk because he didn't want to meet them at the level of curiosity. He did respond rather by trying to bring them from curiosity to something higher. Come and see, he said. He invited them to follow him more closely and to spend time with him. This was the first stage of their Christian life, a true encounter with Jesus. That leads us to the second stage of the growth and vocation. Once we encounter Jesus, we're summoned to change and invited to become his disciple. Disciple is the Greek word for student. We recognize Jesus as the master and we begin to learn from him. Not just facts or other information that we might ignore or forget, but mainly learn him and from him how to live, how to die, and how to live forever. We learn a new way of life. At Jesus' invitation, Andrew and John came and saw Jesus' homeless mansion where he didn't have a place to lay his head. St. John gives us a very interesting detail, which is one of the reasons why he was almost certainly the other disciple he named, because it would have been hard for him to know it otherwise. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. This detail shows us first how much of an impression the encounter with Jesus had in his life, that he would never forget the precise time he met Jesus for the first time and decided to follow him. It also shows us that this meeting wasn't brief. Scholars convincingly have demonstrated, based on the text of John, there was probably a Friday when this encounter happened. Once Jews reached about 4 p.m., the Sabbath would begin and travel would be prohibited. So it's likely that Andrew and John got to spend not just an hour or two with Jesus, but a little more than a full day with him, peppering him with questions, answering his queries, laughing, praying, just being with him. Whatever happened over that length of time, they were changed and converted. They were no longer curious hangers-on. They were believers. They were prepared out of that faith to follow him faithfully the rest of their life on earth. When he would, And when he would later visit them on the Sea of Galilee and call them from their boats, nets, fish, families, and homes, they responded immediately. But because they really believed in him, they were not content to remain merely at the level of discipleship. Andrew, as soon as the Sabbath was over, quickly moved to the third stage, which is the apostolate or mission. Once he was able to travel, he ran to find his brother Simon to announce to him the news any Jew would have longed for centuries to hear. We have found the Messiah. He couldn't restrain from sharing with the brother he loved that they had won the jackpot of jackpots. Then he did something more. He brought his brother Simon to meet Jesus so that his brother could share the same joy. Little did Andrew know what the Lord would do with his brother, that Jesus would change Simon's name to Cephas, Peter, meaning rock, and later say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All Andrew did was announce the good news to his brother and bring him to Jesus. Jesus did the rest. Little do we know what will happen when we announce Jesus to others and try to bring them to encounter him and choose to follow him. That's something we don't need to know. Once we've really encountered Christ, however, once we've really begun to learn from him and follow him, we're impelled interiorly to share him with others so that he can work the same wonders in them as he has worked in us. Jesus wants every one of us to engage 
in a, just as consequential a conversation so that we, like them, might pass through these three vocational stages. There are many people who remain, even into adulthood, at the level of mere fascination with Jesus. They're admirers, but never really encountered him at the life-changing depth Jesus desires. Even Catholics who have received all the sacraments of initiation can still not have taken this first step in the ladder of faith. They might know a lot about Jesus. He's clearly too easy, too famous to forget, and his claims about heaven and hell, and about the importance of our choice on earth are too important and easily to dismiss. But they encounter Jesus at a safe distance as an important historical figure, as a religious leader, and behave as if they're followers of Jesus because they try to live by some of the principles he taught. But they mainly go through the religious motions, hedging their beds. They may come to Mass, they may receive Holy Communion, they may say some prayers, but they won't really center their life around listening to the Lord speaking to us in prayer and calling us to change. They'll be good to their neighbor and perhaps support the church without really putting their hearts into it. To the many people at this vocational stage, Jesus says, full of tenderness. What are you really looking for? He invites us to come and see, to enter into his life more deeply. He tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and beckons us to follow. Jesus eagerly wants all those who are at this stage to encounter him at a personal level, and from there be upgraded to the status of true disciples on the inside and outside both. Discipleship is the second stage. Like with Saints Andrew and John, this means not just meeting Jesus, but staying with him and following him wherever he wants to lead. It means treating him not just as someone who's important in our life, but as God, as the single most important reality of our existence, from wh- for whom we'll sacrifice everything else if necessary. A true disciple of the Lord will live a life of deep prayer will make Mass the source and summit of his or her existence. will seek to be a good student, sitting at the feet of Jesus the Master and pondering his words in sacred scripture and trying to act on them. will love those who the Lord loves and has called into the family of the church as well. Are we at the stage of discipleship? Is our relationship with Jesus the most defining reality of our life? If we were to call us today to follow more intimately, to make a major change in our life, are we prepared because of that relationship to leave everything else behind to follow Jesus in his footsteps? Jesus wishes to give us the grace all of us need to live at this level. But as important as this is, it's not enough. Once we recognize the beauty of a life of true discipleship with Jesus, we naturally want to share that reality with those we care about. Like St. Andrew, true disciples cannot stop from bursting out to all those around them. We have won the lottery. We have found the Messiah. We've encountered God and his salvation. If we love Jesus, we'll naturally want to spread love of him. We'll want to bring others to him so that they can experience the same joy we've found. Jesus, of course, could have stayed on earth until the end of time and proclaimed the gospel himself to every man and woman. But he loved us enough and trusted us enough that he wanted us to share in his mission for the salvation of the world. Today, the Lord wants to stoke in us a desire for the full flourishing of our Christian vocation and to come to him and be sent by him to be a holy disciple and an ardent apostle. This Sunday, Jesus wants us to follow Follow him to his house on earth, to the place where he dwells, where he speaks to us, feeds us, and renews us. He'll turn to each of us and ask, what are you looking for? And wants to help us to seek him, to find him, to love him, to share his life, and to bring others into communion with him. So we prepare on Sunday to behold and receive the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We ask for his help to become like St. John the Evangelist and St. Andrew, so that at the end of the celebration of the Christian Sabbath, filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit, we'll go out to find those we love and bring them Jesus, the great news personified. We have indeed found the Messiah, and so much more than the Messiah. At a time when our world, church, society, and families need the Messiah more than ever, Let us make it our top priority to bring Jesus to others and others to him. This is why we're alive. God bless you. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 